Well, great to be here with you in the house of God this morning, and again, a special welcome to any guests or visitors who may be with us. If you need to use the facilities, if you're a guest or a visitor, you'll find them right out there in the foyer, so uh, no charge for that. We're glad to welcome you to this place with us. We are starting a new series this morning, and in this series, the goal is pretty simple. We're just trying to get to know Jesus a little bit better, ideally a lot better. And uh, in this endeavor, we're going to be spending time in John's Gospel, which I just read for you a section of. And we're going to be focusing on things in John's Gospel that were said about Jesus or that Jesus said about himself. He says some really important things about himself in John's Gospel. And what we're going to do with each of these statements is we're going to dive deep into them because they are absolutely exploding with meaning and significance. But before we turn to that task today, let's take a moment to pray. Father in heaven, we believe that you enabled John the Apostle to accurately record for us the words of John the Baptist. And so now by your Spirit, help us to understand these words a bit better. And more than this, help us to live in the reality to which these words point. We ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to tell you something that I have concluded over the last ten years or so. I can think of no more challenging time and no more challenging place to be a disciple of Jesus than the time and place in which we presently find ourselves. Now, to be sure, there have undoubtedly been more frightening times. For example, second half of the first century when Christians were often crucified for saying the things about Jesus that we say in here every Sunday. That happened. That was pretty frightening. I can think of more dangerous places, places in the world today like North Korea. Being a Christian there can be very dangerous. Places, parts of China, for example. But the challenging of following Jesus, it, the, but the, the, the quest to follow Jesus in our time, in our place, I think is arguably one of the most challenging. Why? I think it owes to a lot of factors. Let me, let me just mention a few. I think, number one, it owes to the affluence of our society, which can lull us into a false sense of security. I think it also owes to hostile, increasingly hostile cultural forces which can compel us into forms of self-censorship. You ever heard that phrase, self-censorship, about our faith, about what we believe? We we better not say anything about it because that might offend somebody. Let me tell you, self-censorship is much more effective than old-fashioned censorship from an outside person or institution that is enforced using brute force. There's a lot of self-censorship these days. And I think the challenge of following Jesus in our time and place also owes to some of the really impressive and wonderful breakthroughs in science and medicine. I celebrate those things, but the truth is they can sneakily become a basis for our hope and assurance about the future. That's where we put our money. That's where we put our hope. And so there are a lot of reasons why following Jesus in this time and place are really challenging. And the question today is how are we going to meet those challenges? One way, and it's really quite straightforward, is just to be curious, to continue to ask this age-old question, who is Jesus? Who is he? And to devote ourselves to getting to know him as he underlined this word, truly is. Truly is. Not the caricatures in culture, not the false ideas about him that exist in all of our brains, but as he truly is, according to the Bible. Now, some of you might be surprised by this suggestion. Some of you might be feeling offended right now. Uh, After all, don't you already know who Jesus is? That's why you're in church. Don't be offended. In many ways, you do know some things about who Jesus is. But the flip side is that in many ways, we don't know fully who Jesus is. And so we need to explore that. Let me illustrate that claim that I've just made for you, that we all need to grow in this area. 
There's this professor who teaches at a Christian university. My brother-in-law used to know him. We love to tell this story when we get together. And most of this professor's students, because he teaches at a Christian university, they come from Christian families. And that means they've read their Bible. They know the stories of the New Testament and Jesus. So they get into his class. He teaches the New Testament survey class every year. They get into his class, and the first thing that he has his students do is to complete a personality profile. He does this so that he can get to know who they are and so they can get to know themselves better, growing a little self-awareness. Every college student could use some of that. Uh, So they they do this profile. It kind of maps out their values and their gifts, their virtues, their temperament, their disposition, you know, their Myers-Briggs, all that kind of stuff. They do that survey on day one, and then the course gets underway. And in the course, they study through all the Gospels. They read them slowly and carefully. They study through all the letters of the New Testament. They read them closely and carefully. And then about two-thirds of the way through the course... The professor gets his students to fill out the very same personality profile once again. But this time, they have to do it for Jesus. They have to fill it out on his behalf so they can try to map out Jesus' values and gifts, his virtues, his Myers-Briggs, his disposition and temperament. Anyone want to guess what this professor invariably discovers year after year after year? He discovers that Jesus is a near clone of each student who completed that personality profile on his behalf. He's just like them. He's got the same values and gifts, same virtues, same winning personality of each student who did that profile on his behalf. The great philosopher Voltaire once said, God made man in his image, and then man returned the favor. And it's been happening like that ever since Genesis chapter 3, and that is why it is so, so important that we continue to ask ourselves this question, who is Jesus? Who is he really according to Scripture? And the answer to that question, and I say this to folks who call Christ the King home, the answer to this question will determine the dreams for ministry that we have at this place, and it will determine the quality of the ministry that is done in this place in the years to come. So on this note, I want to have a little chat with John the Baptizer this morning. And I want to put that question to him. Who is Jesus? Let's ask John. He's a good person to ask. He was Jesus' cousin. That meant he grew up with Jesus. He would have heard all the great and amazing stories about things Jesus did. He probably saw some of those things. But more than that, John is a good person to ask because of all the people that ever lived, he had one of the greatest privileges a human could be given. He had the privilege of formally introducing Jesus the Messiah to the world. And we heard about that today in our reading from John chapter 1. Now, to prepare John the baptizer for this privilege... God led him out into the wilderness, away from all the noise and the glitz and the hype. He went out to Sandy Island, but not to the beach part, because there is a lot of hype and noise out there. He went to the back part of Sandy Island, and he went out there where it was quiet so he could hear and perceive. And out in the wilderness, John seems to have come to this deep conviction that his cousin Jesus could somehow meet the colossal and horrendous needs of Polly's Island and Georgetown County and South Carolina and the United States and the whole wide world. That's the conviction that he came to. And that is what he is saying when he says in verse 27, I am not worthy even to stoop down and untie the sandals of my cousin Jesus. He's the guy. Now, as John set out to introduce Jesus to the world, how was he to adequately express what he came to understand? How are we to do that? What titles and descriptions can possibly do justice to the reality of Jesus? Well, John gives us some help 
He makes a number of really insightful observations right here in chapter 1 about who Jesus is. There are a lot of them in the text, but today we're just going to focus on one. It's right there in verse 29. I want to hone in on this one. When John sees Jesus approaching in the wilderness, he says, Behold, or look. That Greek word that's used there means grasp, perceive, understand. He says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's all say that together. Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, that title has been used in Christian worship for centuries, still used today around the world, but nobody ever used it before John. And when he used it, it stuck because it's true. I want to drill into that little statement. What does John want us to know about Jesus in describing him this way? What is in John's mind? What is in his imagination? Now, you can see that there are four little terms in that title. Lamb takes away sin and world. And I want you to notice what happens if you put those in reverse order. World, sin, takes away lamb. And that is true, is it not? The world filled with sin took away the lamb of God at the, at the cross. That's what happened. But then the gospel in this marvelous, brilliant little reversal turns it around. And it says instead, the lamb of God takes away the sin that is in the world. Because that is exactly what happened on the cross. First term I want to explore is world. Now, in Greek, the word there is cosmos, from which we get cosmopolitan. It's a great drink. Some people think it's a great magazine. Not me. The Baptist is using that word very intentionally. And in this word, he is communicating that Jesus' concern is not just the sin in Israel or the sin of the church, but rather the sin of the whole wide world, the sin in Afghanistan and China, the sin in Peru and Canada, and yes, even the United States. We are talking about something cosmic in scope. But here's something else. In John's gospel, you've got to get this. The word cosmos has a very distinct connotation. It actually refers to the whole human order which exists in enmity against God, in rebellion against God. In fact, in the Bible, that word cosmos denotes the fact that human society, and we're part of that, chronically is inclined to organize itself without any reference to God, completely apart from God. Again, that started in Genesis chapter 3. We see this every day. I see it every day. Let me make this theme a little bit more concrete, a little bit more local by giving you an analogy. I see the meaning of the word cosmos every day in the constant threat of mutiny that exists in the rebel household. It's constant. Not too long ago, Cindy and I implemented a system to incentivize good behavior. It's stars on a whiteboard. We are very creative. And those stars can be earned by the smaller, sometimes insubordinate members of the rebel household for good behavior. And then once the stars are in the bank, they can be cashed out for really great prizes like breakfast and supper and other things like that. <laughs> or they can be used to go play putt-putt. That takes a lot of stars, though. Now, while those stars can be earned and spent to make lots of fun and happy memories, they can also be stripped away. And there's been a lot of stripping away of stars lately, let me tell you. And as you might imagine, the stripping away of stars has really chapped those smaller people who live in the rebel household, which is why they have recently decided to take matters into their own hands. The parents will also have stars, stars which can also be stripped away with consequences. No peace and quiet while mom and Roger try to take a nap on Sunday afternoon. Deliberate jumping on beds that have just been freshly made, waking up at ungodly hours in the morning. And even worse, these rebellious little twerps 
are now trying to fully commercialize the star system. I kid you not, a few weeks ago I said to Hugo, will you go over there in the garage and get something for me? And he said, half star, Roger, that'll cost a half star. (laughs) He did. I was flabbergasted. Let's just say the tail is trying to wag the dog. It is mutiny, the definition of mutiny. And if things don't change, somebody's going to walk the plank. And based on the current trajectory, it might just be me. Now, that is a simplistic and silly analogy for what is going on in the world, according to St. John, that word cosmos, except what's happening in the world in this sense is not simplistic and it is not silly. We're talking about humans and human society against God, trying to organize ourselves in opposition to God without reference to God. It's in all of our lives. It's in every nation. It's in our nation. It's in your heart, and it is in my heart. And that leads us to the second word I want to look at, the word sin, sin of the world. I want you to note that the Baptist uses the singular rather than the plural here, sin. While it's true that Jesus, the Lamb of God, does take away the sins of the world, what John is really interested in now is that he takes away the sin of the world. And here's what you need to know about that. Specific acts of sin, things like gossip, stinginess, a refusal to forgive, murder, those are only symptoms of sin with a capital S, sin. So what is sin with a capital S? Here's how one theologian, a guy called Keith Miller, defines it. I thought this was pretty insightful. Sin, writes Keith Miller, is a basic, all-encompassing self-centeredness. We're talking about the need to control in order to get what we want. We're talking about an attitude that colors and tarnishes every relationship and that emasculates our relationship with God. Sin is about our apparent inability to say no to our need to control people and places and things in order to implement our own self-centered desires. We might believe in God. We might say we love Him a great deal, but at the essential level, we are in control or often struggling to be in control. Ouch. Well, let me put it this way. The force that the Bible calls sin, with a capital S, has a lot in common with the illicit dynamic that is at work in chemical addiction. Sin is a lot like the dynamic that leads the addict to fasten upon an addictive chemical or an impulsive behavior, a dynamic that promises to to fulfill these often grandiose dreams or to blot out the painful things in life. And what that means, and here's what you need to know, is that sin is the ultimate deadly infection. And I'm not going to play this down because that would be tantamount to your doctor downplaying the fact that you had stage 3 or stage 4 colon cancer. So I'm not going to play that down for you today. And it applies to me too. Now, here's this tricky thing about the force of sin. Its chief symptom is denial. Its chief symptom is denial. Just like denial is one of the defining characteristics of chemical addiction, so too is sin. Neither sinners nor addicts can see the extent to which their addiction is ruining all their lives and all their relationships. And that is what makes chronic addicts and self-absorbed sinners so hard to treat. They are both honestly unaware of how deeply ill and sick they are. Am I speaking to anyone else in the room besides myself this morning? The sin of the world is this deeply rooted need to try to be our own God. And that results in alienation from the real God. And it results in bondage to drives and to desires that are beneath our dignity. And by the way, we live in a society right now which often honors and celebrates those kind of drives and desires, but they are beneath our dignity. And all that leads to death, not just death in a physical sense. It leads to relational death, brain dead, emotional death, psychological death, self-image death, all sorts of death. 
which is why we need to move on to that third term. We need some good news now. Takes away. Takes away. Behold, there's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now, in what sense takes away? What does that actually mean? Because obviously, sin was still in the world when Jesus came, and sin was still in the world after he resurrected and ascended, and still, sin is still in the world right now. So what exactly is John the Baptist announcing here? Now, the verb he uses there that we translate takes away, it kind of has uh, two senses. One of the senses means to take up and carry, and the other sense means to carry off, which means that when John looks at his cousin Jesus walking over, he sees somebody who will take up the sin of the world and carry it all far, far away. But what does that entail? What's that mean? It's still a little bit abstract. And that brings us to the fourth and most, arguably most important word in this title that we're looking at today, Lamb of God. Lamb of God. What is in John's mind when he says this? Now, as it happens, and those of you who've spent a lot of time reading the Bible, this is not going to be a surprise to you, but there may be a lot of things in John's mind from the Old Testament when he uses that phrase, Lamb of God. For instance, maybe you're thinking of the prophet Isaiah, uh, who predicted centuries before this suffering servant, this mysterious guy who would be sent by God to deal with sin. Let me read you something from Isaiah chapter 53. You'll see the connection immediately. Surely he's borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was smitten by God. He was afflicted. He was pierced for my transgressions. He was crushed for my iniquities. We all like sheep have gone astray, yet the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed. He was afflicted, and yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb, he was led to the slaughter. So as John saying, look, there he is, the lamb foretold by the prophet Isaiah, the one who for the sake of the world is voluntarily taking its sin on himself. Maybe that was what was in John's mind. But maybe he had another image in his mind. Maybe he had the Passover in his mind. Everybody know what the Passover is? Ever read the book of Exodus? Ever seen Prince of Egypt? Okay, you know what the Passover is. That takes us back to the time when the Egyptians had enslaved and were oppressing the Israelite people, the people of God. And God was making multiple attempts to secure their freedom, to get them liberated and and. Pharaoh in Egypt was not responding well, so God said, okay, I'm going to send a plague that will make you change your mind. Because of your injustice and cruelty, because of your refusal to listen to me, I'm going to send my angel of death. And when that angel comes, the firstborn son in every house in Egypt, all the way up to the palace, will be struck down and slain. Now, in a patriarchal society like ancient Egypt, where everybody's hopes were in the family, And the principle of primogeniture, everything goes to the first son, the name, the wealth, and all that. That was a way of striking at the very root of society, at the hope of society. It was a terrible judgment. But here's the thing, and this is what Christians often forget. Before God actually sent the angel of death, he turned over and looked at the Israelites, the the people he was freeing, the slaves, and he said, and I don't want you to forget this. Sin is debt, and you are sinners too. And so when my angel of death comes... The only way you're going to have your firstborn son saved is if you kill a lamb and then spread, sprinkle, or paint its blood on the doorpost of your house. And when you do that, that angel of death will pass over you, and you will not be slain for your sins. And so that's the beginning of the Passover. That's how it started, and it was celebrated year after year after year in Israel at the time when Jesus was alive. It was a night of celebrating and remembering the night when Israel was not slain for her sins. Now, John the Baptist would have known all about the Passover. He celebrated it. His father was a priest in the temple. But guess what? I think, like most of us, John probably also knew the difficulty 
of believing that all it takes to deal with our sin is just killing one sweet, lovely little lamb, that that'll do it, that that'll atone for sin. I think John knew that that probably wasn't really what was going on here. So maybe as his cousin Jesus is walking up, John says, behold, there's the true lamb, the lamb who will negate the need for any other lambs to be sacrificed, the lamb who will deal with sin, the lamb who will negate the need for any sacrifice. And that was happening all the time at the temple in Jerusalem. Every day, morning and evening, they were slaughtering lambs and goats and cows to deal with the sins of the the people. And so maybe John is saying, behold, here's the real lamb, the lamb, the one who really will deliver. Yet there's one third thing, I think, that might have been in John's mind when he said, behold, the Lamb of God. I think maybe um, he might have been thinking of Abraham and Isaac back in Genesis chapter 22. That's one of the most harrowing stories in the Old Testament. God commands Abraham to take his only son, Isaac, up to Mount Moriah for a sacrifice. And Abraham, he's a man of faith, so he obeys this really strange command. Up to the mountain he goes, he's got his knife in his hand, and his son Isaac is there carrying the wood up for the sacrifice. And as they get to the top of that mountain, the question that had been haunting Isaac, and I think had been haunting his father Abraham, finally emerges. Isaac says, behold, father, the fire and the wood, but where's the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham replies, verse 28 of that chapter, one of the most important verses in the Bible. He says, God will provide for himself a lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And then Abraham goes on and he does what God had initially instructed. He prepares the altar and he puts his only son Isaac on it. And just as he is about to thrust that knife into his son, God says, stop. And there's a lamb over there in the bushes that takes Isaac's place. Is that story in John's mind? Look, there's the lamb of God, the the lamb that God himself provides. It's this ancient promise all the way back to Genesis 22 that God himself will provide the lamb. Is it being fulfilled finally and ultimately in Christ? Is John the Baptist saying, look, it is the lamb of God, so there's no need for any other lamb to be sacrificed again, no children to be sacrificed, none of that, because God himself has provided the lamb. So which of these images did John have in his mind? Kind of a trick question, by the way. Because I think what we're seeing here is John the Apostle's habit of using a term that has lots of nuances and lots of different meanings all at the same time. That's what's going on. All the threads, all the strings are coming together. And so we can say that in Jesus walking up, John sees the suffering lamb of Isaiah who takes the place of sinful humanity. He sees the Passover lamb who delivers from slavery and death. He sees the true lamb of God promised and provided to Abraham whose blood will seal the eternal covenant of peace between creator and creation. And by the way, I think that is precisely why Jesus' last words on the cross were, it is finished, because all of that came to fruition. All of that came together. Something long foretold, something long hinted at, something ultimate, something cosmic is being finished. Look, do you see? Do you see? Now, what are the practical implications of this? They are wide-ranging, and they are staggering. I just want to mention two of them in closing today. Number one, it is safe to be in the presence of God, to be in the presence of Jesus. It is safe. What do I mean by that? What I mean is that because Jesus is the Lamb of God who has taken away the sin of the world, we can dare to come forward about our sin and our brokenness. 
because everything that needs to be done about our sin ultimately and cosmically has been done. St. Paul puts it like this, there is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus, Romans 8, chapter 1. And so my question for you today is this, do you believe that? Not just in your head, but in the way that you live your life. Do you really believe that? There is no condemnation. There's a movie cover right there on the screen. Some of you might have seen it. It's a great film. It's got Robin Williams, one of my favorite actors. Such a tragedy his death was. Um, It's called The Fisher King, made back in the early 90s, I think. And in this movie, there are two main characters. There's a guy called Perry, that's Robin Williams, and there's this gal called Lydia. She's played by Amanda Plummer. And Perry and Lydia go out on a date, and it's a fantastic date. They have a great time. And then as the night wraps up, they're kind of walking home, talking about what's going to happen next. And Lydia looks at Perry, and she says, hey, here's what's going to happen. We're going to exchange phone numbers, and it'll feel really good, but then you won't call. And I'll go to work, and I'll feel really good for the first hour, but you'll never call. And slowly, I'll turn into a piece of dirt. And so even while I had a wonderful time with you tonight, I never want to see you again. She is terrified of rejection. She's a woman with a story. She's got brokenness. She's kind of quirky. She's terrified of rejection. And so that's what she says to Perry. And then he responds, and he says something completely unexpected. He says, this is great. He says, I have a confession to make. What? She says, are you married? Are you divorced? He says, no. I already know all about you. I know you hate your job. I know you don't have many friends. I know that you're uncoordinated. She was. I know that you feel that you are not as good as everyone else. I know all about you, but I love you. And I think you're the greatest thing since Spice Racks. And I long for our first kiss, and I will always call you if you let me. And she looks at him, and what does she say? She says, you're real? He is real. And that is now our situation before God through Christ Jesus. So it's safe to come out of hiding. It's safe to come into the presence of Jesus. Doesn't matter what other people think of you or what you've done. Doesn't matter what you think about yourself or what you've done. Because the buck stops with the Lord. The buck stops with the Lamb of God who has taken away your sins and mine. And here's a second implication it's possible to change power of that great deadly infection called sin, it has been overcome. The stranglehold of the addiction has been broken, and that means that we do not have to be what we have often become because of sin. The deeply rooted patterns of sin in our life can be uprooted. We can change. Finally, we can change. We don't have to yield to sin. We will. That will happen. We do. But we don't have to. There is no more inherent necessity to do that because something has changed. Something has been done to sin, and if you've been baptized, you have been baptized into that something. This is not about perfectionism. This is about hope. You can change. So, even if you're 70 or 80 years of age, not that anyone in this room is close to being that old, but even if you are and you're stuck in your ways, guess what? You can change. Some of those ways in which you're stuck... They might be problematic. You might need to change. You can change. And if you're 35 or 40 and you're getting stuck in some of your ways and some of those are not good ways to be stuck in, guess what? You can change too. You can change. 
Now, to be sure, that process of change will sometimes feel like an uphill battle. Cindy feels that way on my behalf every week. It can feel like an uphill battle. But the good news is that it is no longer just our battle. The Lamb of God has made it his battle, and he invites us into his victory. And so our chief part, your part, is to yield. Come clean. Come as you are. Throw yourself on Jesus. Let me put it this way. You got junk? Raise your hand if you got junk. If your hand's not up, you're lying. If you got junk, he'll take that. He'll take that. You got junk on the hard drive? You got junk on that private browser on your mobile phone? He will take that. You got junk in how you think about your body? He will take that. You got junk in about how you're thinking about a person who said something to you that hurt you, really hurt your feelings. Maybe they didn't mean it, but it hurt you, and you got junk about forgiving. Jesus will take that. He will help you. Are you junked up with anger, with impatience, with stinginess, with a tendency towards impulsive behavior that is ruining your life, not good for you, not good for the people around you? You wish you didn't have all these struggles, but you do. You got that junk? He will take that. Jesus loved junk. Your junk is his treasure, and he knows just what to do with it. So behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Amen.